No, you tell it. No, you. I'm not telling it. You should totally tell it. <laughs> well, you should tell it. No, you tell it. No, You Tell It is a series that switches up the storytelling. So each performer writes a true life tale and then, switching with a partner, performs the other person's story, giving everyone involved the chance to share their own stories and experience someone else's. Breakups can be confusing at times, especially when your heart parts ways with a city. Our first story takes us over the Hudson from New York City to New Jersey as our narrator reflects on what it means to move on from the place that she's always loved. In celebration of our 10-year anniversary, here's a throwback swap, part of our first alum storyteller show at the Astoria Bookshop. A Breakup Story was written by Julia Grunacki and is performed here by Molly Tauger. A Breakup Story. The Beacon Theater at 74th and Broadway is a neo-Grecian beauty, a preserved landmark and an echo of New York's decadent roaring 20s. I never saw the inside of this theater in my 20s. Instead, at the age of 38, after nearly 10 years of living in Manhattan, I am finally here, having somehow never had an opportunity to clamber up its red velvety steps before. Tonight, New York's own Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings is playing, and it feels as though everything I love about this damn city is displayed before me in this gilded theater, with a gorgeous, bald, badass black woman setting the stage on fire with her James Brown moves and her big, joyous voice. I am here because I have found my unicorn, my mystical creature of a man with gingery hair. He is a man who slipped in under the radar just when I had nearly given up hope, having had my fill of bad dates, layered in unsolicited sexting, confused gender roles, <laughs> who pays for dinner, me, you, or Dutch, and empty conversations. And there he was, with normal interests, complexities, and most importantly, he made me laugh so hard I peed my pants. I did. I peed him. <laughs> he knew my love of Sharon Jones, so he surprised me with tickets in my stocking on Christmas morning. And tonight, it is time to collect, and I am enjoying every minute of the show. He smiles and sips his whiskey. I jump around quite a bit. I find it difficult to sit and stay put when it comes to the Dap Kings. He is my anchor, my calm in the eye of any storm. Even now, as I jump up and down, he grabs the belt loop of my jeans to fix me to the balcony for fear I might tumble over the edge in a fit of excitement. This night is reminiscent of when we first started dating, with me meeting him at a choosing New York City destination as though I still live there, and him commuting in. But in reality, we were just meeting separately after work because it was easier than me going home and coming back into the city. I reflect on our time before we moved in together. I remember the butterflies, the anticipation and the excitement of seeing one another after being separated for days. Beginnings are always bright and shiny things. People never talk about the middle. They only talk about beginnings and endings, but here I was in the middle. So I asked myself, self, <laughs> how is the middle going exactly? <laughs> and I chew on that for a moment. Earlier in the evening, walking over to the Beacon, I found myself looking up into apartment windows, wondering about other New Yorkers' lives, when something caught my eye. It was unmistakable. Through the window of overgrown plants, facing the street, was a Ghostbusters poster. <laughs> Can you get more New York than Ghostbusters? A story about, well, catching ghosts, but also a love story. A love story about loving New York and saving it from the Stay Puffed Marshmallow Man. <laughs> and of course, the love story between Sigourney Weaver's Dana Barrett 
and Bill Murray's Peter Venkman. Bill Murray once said, if you have someone who you think is the one, don't just sort of think in your ordinary mind and think, oh, okay, let's make a date, let's plan this and make a party and get married. Take that person and travel around the world. Buy a plane ticket for the two of you to travel all around the world and go to places that are hard to go to and hard to get out of. And if, when you get back to JFK, when you land at JFK and you're still in love with that person, <laughs> get married at the airport. <laughs> <laughs> well, the ginger and I didn't travel the world. Instead, after being together just three months, we went on a week-long trip to Camp Bisco an electronic dance music festival in upstate New York during one of the hottest Julys known to man. In case you're over 50 or have been living under a rock, let me tell you a little bit about EDM festivals. <laughs> they are essentially a rebirth of the rave scene from the 90s, a scene I know quite well from my youth. However, now the parties take place outside across several days, and often involve camping, usually in the summer in the scorching heat. It is sweaty, it is dirty, and it is awesome, but <laughs> it is not for the faint of heart. You will likely sleep in a tent, you must poop in a porta potty, and you may not shower during its duration because there is typically a mile long line to use the facility. And Bisco was no exception. I knew this trip could make or break us, so I decided to jump right in and hold nothing back because at this point in my life, I had nothing to lose. To my relief, we bonded, made new friends, ate some questionable narcotics, <laughs> danced their asses off, and slept under the stars. Like Bill Murray said, it was hard to go to and hard to get out of. But in the end, though completely sleep-deprived and hungover, I was absolutely head over heels in love. This being said, it is important to note that my courtship with the ginger was not a whirlwind romance, but surprisingly, surprisingly a rather mature and calm endeavor. It had to be, you see, because, well, he lives in New Jersey. <laughs> now, I had determined that I did not have any vanity issues or hang-ups about dating a man from Jersey. I'm from Florida, for Christ's sake, so I am certainly not one to judge one's character based on where they are from. I explained this to him when he instant messaged me with, I thought girls like you didn't date guys like me. And by that he meant New York City-type girls, snobs who wouldn't slum it with a boy like him from Jersey. I knew women like this existed, but I reiterated I was not one of them. And so it began, our relationship. We alternated weekends at my place, and with him driving into the city and me taking New Jersey Transit out. At the time, my trips to the green, tree-lined streets of the Burbs felt like an escape, a vacation of sorts, and it worked. It worked really well, and so did we. As time passed, and I missed him more in the days we spent apart, I knew that an important conversation was going to be had. Would I be willing to become a Jersey girl? Unbeknownst to me, the ginger was doing his own soul and logistical <laughs> searching into becoming a New Yorker. However, after some long discussions and a list of pros and cons, we compromised and settled on a small town, nine minutes outside the city, on the New Jersey Transit. The first few months felt like little to no transition at all. My commute time was almost a lateral move. I still spent my days working in the city, and when I came home, I had a ginger I loved on my couch and a washer and dryer in my laundry closet. A laundry closet. My identity was still firmly based in New York, though even with my newly laminated Jersey license in my wallet, I still felt firmly anchored to my city. My city. It's fascinating how New Yorkers call it that. Mine. 
The first time I heard someone refer to it as such was on a bus ride up from Philly. Observing the New York City skyline from the New Jersey Turnpike, my traveling buddy said, there she is, my city. I didn't fully understand that moment until the Christmas after I moved away. There was just something about that holiday in New York. I suddenly became nostalgic, and not to sound too dramatic, but downright mournful about not living there anymore. In the absence of my city, I looked inward, and I found longing in its place. This first materialized as a minute-by-minute dissection and comparison of New Yorkers to the commuters I rode in, in, rode in with every morning and evening from work. One night, the ginger and I were running for the New Jersey transit train into the city and barely got through the door while two onlookers st- cynically stood at its opening, smirking at us, laughing, and making comments. If we were on the subway and those were New Yorkers, they would have held the door for us, I said. On another night, I was on my way home from drinks with friends, and I stood on the stairway at the 50th Street 8th Avenue station stop that connects the downtown E&C trains. I lingered on the stairwell with the unspoken rule in mind that if I heard the E train, I would signal the people at the top of the stairs who would then signal the people waiting for the C train and vice versa. Only in New York. I began to forget the puddles of mysterious liquids on the subway seats, the smelly drunk taking up the entire subway bench, the noise from the street that woke me up every morning in my old studio apartment, and the unidentifiable stinking heat of the city in the middle of August. New York can become like an ex-boyfriend that you didn't always get along with, but you had spectacular makeup sets. So you find your mind drifting to the bombastic orgasm that he gave you, forgetting that he was late for everything, and broke up with you over an email. (laughs) Dick. (laughs) Aware of this, I tried to change this pattern of thinking. I tried not to think about it every time I ran out of laundry detergent while using my convenient home machines, knowing there was nowhere in walking distance to buy more. I tried not to think about it every time I wanted to order sushi or Chinese, knowing that the only delivery in the area was from Italian restaurants, five of them. (laughs) Most importantly, I tried not to think about it during my morning commute into the city, where I stared at the other miserable, long-faced souls, dreading our arrival at Mad Max's Thunderdome, a.k.a. Penn motherfucking <laughs> Now, perhaps you have experienced this shit show at rush hour, and you know exactly <laughs> what I'm talking about. If not, in a word, it is anarchy. Complete mayhem. Elbow to elbow, hordes of people all racing. Racing as though being chased by murderers. Like in that movie, The Purge, and they're out after curfew. The only people standing still are the masses of commuters crowding the various teleprompters, waiting for the trains to get track assignments. And they're off. It's a mad dash for the train. If someone falls, they are left for dead. I've seen it. I'm not kidding. A woman tripped and fell, and no one helped her, including me. It is every man for himself in the Thunderdome. However, I was trying not to think about it, especially not on such a special night like tonight, with Sharon Jones singing her heart out. I take a deep breath and shut my eyes. I hum along as she croons into the microphone. The ginger smiles at me, smacks my butt playfully, and calls me a nerd. I smile back and begin to sing as loud as I can, purposefully off-key, in response, and he laughs. Ms. Jones wraps up her final song to a standing ovation, and I am so happy and full of joy. I practically float down the stairs as we exit the beacon. A sense of security and calmness washes over me as the ginger takes me by the hand. This is what I have in the middle. 
Over the years, I was afraid that leaving New York would mean I had given up, when in fact, I had grown up. I was making healthy, thoughtful choices, leaving behind the impetuous and sometimes forced decisions of my youth. The ginger and I round the corner to his car, and he steadies me so that I don't take a spill on the ice. No crowded subway tonight. I am relieved. I slide into the seat and settle in for a ride back home, to the place we chose together. There is just the quiet hum of the car while we zip down the snowy streets of Manhattan. When we hit Columbus, the ginger puts his hand on my knee and pats it gently. What's going on in that head of yours, he says. Nothing, I just, uh, I just had a really good time tonight, I say, as I smile up at the Christmas lights, knowing that the time has come for me to break up with my testy fickle New York, and I'm finally, without a doubt, okay with it. I really am. But we'll always be friends. Prompted by a social media challenge to replace your profile picture with your celebrity lookalike, our next storyteller leans into her own definitions of beauty and identity as she starts to appreciate her likeness to Cher. Switching it up, here's On Becoming Cher, written by Molly Tauger and performed by Julia Granacki. On Becoming Cher. Around my sophomore year of college, people started to tell me fairly regularly I looked like Cher. You may not see it now, or maybe you do, but in 1994, I had long, curly hair and weighed about 115 pounds. So did Cher, who at that time was prancing around on MTV wearing electrical tape, surrounded by swooning sailors 20 years younger. With my olive skin, long face, and deep-set eyes, I couldn't deny there was a resemblance, physically, if not fashionably. <laughs> <laughs> but I didn't appreciate the comparison. It wasn't just that Cher was in her 40s, because at 20 I hadn't yet considered 40. I didn't think of her as old or cougary or know that the boundaries she pushed even existed. I just didn't think she was pretty. Pretty to me was Winona Ryder or Claire Danes, girls with heart-shaped faces and pillowy lips. More immediately, Pretty was anyone on campus in a riot girl band who managed to seem sweet while singing about vaginas or, <laughs> more traditionally, looked sexy in umbro shorts and had shiny hair and giggled wholesomely. <laughs> Pretty was an amalgam of what the guys I knew thought was hot, a definition adjusted for each new opinion but never expanding so far as to include Cher. <laughs> Cher was narrow and angular, spidery in her Bob Mackie headdresses. It was rumored she'd had a rib removed and pubic hair tattooed on her crotch. Her voice sounded like a dude. <laughs> so when people compared me to Cher, my response was to roll my eyes and die on the inside a little. <laughs> because if I looked like Cher, not only was I unattractive, I was protecting the exact, I was projecting the exact opposite of what I wanted at 20, which was to be the kind of girl that both skaters and frat boys fell for, uh, fell over themselves trying to talk to. I wanted porcelain skin, breasts like juicing oranges, and hair that beamed sunlight. It would take years of therapy before I realized the time I'd lost fretting about such things. 15 years of self-actualization later, <laughs> 
Facebook is demanding that I replace my profile pic with my celebrity doppelganger. <laughs> my college roommate, Jen, has already become 90s Mariah Carey. She IMs me through AOL Instant Messenger, which we've now been using for at least 10 years. Be share. I type back, do you think people will get it? And my hair is short and straight. I've gained a few pounds. And when I mentioned that I was once regularly compared to share, people say, yeah, I guess little. They don't see it. Oh, they'll totally get it, Jen insists. They just need to see you side by side. I do a Google search. There are literally millions of shares ordered chronologically from teenage Cleopatra to present day preserved. <laughs> I have to admit it's 80s share, her nose then recently straightened, that bears the most resemblance. I choose a shot of Cher aerobicizing seductively in, shiny, in, a, in a shiny turquoise leotard. The response is immediate. I can't believe I never thought of that before. I thought that was you, you hottie. And my favorite, from my childhood best friend's mom, which I read with her clipped Boston accent. You know, Molly, there really is a similarity. <laughs> it's also around this time that I take up running. This is notable because I've historically been allergic to exercise. But at 35, I've been forced to admit that the pants I've kept because they'll fit again someday are now out of style. <laughs> then my friend Alice, a marathoner, invites me for a jog. She's convinced I'll love the stress reduction. I'm sure my lungs will bleed and my shins will shatter. <laughs> but to my surprise, she's right. After our inaugural outing, I experienced my first post-run euphoria salt on the skin, a weird sense of calm. I keep running on my own. And then to my additional surprise, I start to lose weight. In a few months, I'm buff and have shocked myself by signing up for a half marathon. With this new physical confidence, I develop an interest in pursuing the sexual adventures I'd missed out on in my 20s. I begin by taking up with a young hipster who dresses socks first because otherwise he can't get them on under his skinny jeans. <laughs> a subsequent series of dalliances with men uh, a decade younger causes Jen to dub age 25 my vintage. <laughs> In rapid succession, I pick up a jazz guitarist and a club promoter and then start dating my way through the internet. I've just turned 36 when I mention overdrinks to Alice that this is clearly the year I should be share for Halloween. <laughs> oh my god, you have to, she says. There is no question this time of which share I should be. It's turn back time all the way. <laughs> I start to prepare by watching the video on YouTube. And should you be too young, too old, or slept through 1989, in the Turn Back Time video, Cher is on the USS Missouri, surrounded by the actual crew who are going apeshit. She's wearing a sheer black body stocking, a V of black fabric affixed from groin to shoulders, jangly silvery belts and necklaces, and a motorcycle jacket. At one point, she straddles a cannon. I watched the video presuming I won't be shocked, that I'll find it like Madonna's blasphemy in Like a Prayer, kind of lame in retrospect. I find I'm very wrong. <laughs> For one thing, her outfit is far more revealing than I'd remembered. The coverage is really just the black via fabric, and it merges between her legs so when she turns, 
It's a thong showing off not into pubic hair per se, but a fairly prominent ass tattoo. <laughs> her body is stunning, and I am mesmerized by the way she brandishes her sexuality like a fire baton, daring the audience to comment, to blink. But I also find it a bit disturbing. There is something lonely about Cher parading through the men. She barely glances at them, and their enthusiasm seems less for her and more about being in a video. I fall down the internet rabbit hole and learn that Cher sang Turn Back Time when she was 43 at the end of what she told Oprah was the best time in her life. On her 40th birthday, she was in a funk, having just been turned down for the Witches of Eastwick because the director said she wasn't sexy enough. Over the next few days, she began a dramatic comeback. She started by calling Letterman an asshole and then met the love of her life, a 22-year-old bagel maker. <laughs> She scored the witch's role, then the Oscar for Moonstruck, and just as her star was shining brighter than ever, the bagel boy, overwhelmed by the attention from the paparazzi, ran her Camaro into a photographer. The relationship ended, and a distraught Cher threw herself into exercise videos and plastic surgery. And in 1989, she chose, she chose to strip down, straddle a cannon, and sing her, her heart out for love and time lost. I think to myself, is this really the statement I need to make right now? <laughs> I tell the recently divorced, non-committal artist I'm dating about my costume idea. He is extremely enthusiastic. <laughs> Alice decides that she's throwing a Halloween party, which defines both the space and the audience for my debut. A small apartment and a guest list that includes the skinny jeans, the skinny jeans hipster, another more substantial ex, and their girlfriends. Besides interpersonal awkward, awkwardness, it occurs to me there is little at stake. Three of the potential party guests have already seen me naked. <laughs> and I realize, as must have Cher, that there will be a limited amount of time that I can pull this off. I begin by improvising at home. Lacking a sheer black body stocking, I start with control top pantyhose. For the black V, I use a pair of opaque tights, tucking the waistband into my control tops at the small of my back, threading the legs through my crotch, <laughs> and flipping the feet over my shoulders. For necklaces, I choose silver rope chains I've inherited from my grandmother, wearing half around my neck, the other half is belt secured with a safety pin. I put on black boots and then stand in front of the full-length mirror. I'm a bit startled. <laughs> Though the costume needs some tweaking, most notably a top hat. <laughs> in concept, it's working. The combined elements have created share body, the black V elongating my torso, the belt accentuating the curve of my waist, the face, it's still me, but I also see the parts that really are her, the straight nose, which she paid for, <laughs> the deep set eyes, the bemused smile. I lift my chin, thrust out my chest, and try to look fierce. I don't exactly feel beautiful, but instead, what I imagine a transvestite must feel and drag for the first time on the brink of a new persona unleashed. <laughs> Finding something to serve as the upper half of a body stocking proves surprisingly difficult. I had presumed I could find a sheer camisole in one of the cheap clothing stores in my largely Dominican neighborhood. 
My stereotyping is not rewarded. <laughs> I tried thrift stores, Target, Chinatown, and eventually give up and turn to the obvious but distasteful solution, American apparel. <laughs> I am rewarded with a bodysuit with, with crotch snaps. <laughs> the Dominican dollar store provides the faux leather jacket, brand Forever 17. <laughs> the final piece, the hair, eludes me until I let go of needing a humongous perm and decide a wavy black wig will suffice. I spend a few hours at work printing out multiple copies of the same image of one cheery-looking sailor and a battleship. I back the pictures with cardboard and carefully cut them out, intending to wear them at my hip. A key ring of boy minions and their vessel. <laughs> <laughs> On the afternoon before the party, I try it out in full. Black panties first, then nylons, then the bodysuit. I roll electrical tape through my legs, up to my shoulders. It looks right doesn't stick securely. After a brief panic, I text a crafty friend and she recommends using some of the sailors as pasties, extra coverage in case things slide. <laughs> I put on the necklaces, pin the belt, slip on the jacket and boots, and finally pile my hair into the wig. I look in the mirror. I still don't feel beautiful, not traditional beauty anyway, but I am shit-eatingly pleased. <laughs> What I see is off the hook hot. Unmistakably Cher, but also unmistakably me. I lift my chin, stick out my chest, and imagine calling Letterman an asshole. <laughs> it's showtime. <laughs> it. Thanks for joining us for this installment of No, You Tell It. Visit us on the web at knowyoutellit.com.